morning. I'm Bob Bazanz, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Sober through the grace of God, sponsorship in AA since the 10th of December, 1967, and for that I'm very grateful. <laughs> this has been a terrific weekend. It is uh, really great to be here. I want to thank Eric and the committee for the invitation to be here. Uh, I love this hotel. I, uh, I had a we had an unmarried aunt in our family that was like a second mother to all of us, to the 16 that were in my generation, cousins, and and she t always took us on an eighth grade trip. And my eighth grade trip, I stayed in this hotel and uh, froze my butt off. It was like it was like zero, and we had a snowstorm, and we were walking around Chicago. But I have really great great memories of this hotel. I love this room. I love the room yesterday afternoon when we had that workshop. I mean, you don't, in modern hotels today, and I've been to a lot of fancy new hotels, they just can't get this. I mean, this was the largest hotel in the world when it was built. And uh, in your wonderful city, my wife's an Oak Park girl, and uh, we've always had a connection to Chicago, and uh, it's great being here. And uh, one of my connections to Chicago is my dear friend Frank and his group, and I I always feel uh, supported and connected when I'm here. It's been an interesting weekend. The talks this weekend have been different. Uh, everybody gave kind of a, Peggy gave a little different talk, Dick gave one of the best talks for me that I've heard him give, and uh, I just enjoy everything Frank says, so I don't, I'm not a very good objective uh, person when it comes to Frank, but I, it, it was wonderful. And, and thoughtful, and I think that at all. And uh, Chris this morning kind of blew me out of the water. It's like drinking out of a fire hose listening to Chris. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, uh, no, but it's really good stuff. Strong, provocative. Uh, about ten. I found myself reacting a little bit because I get uh, there's part of me that when I listen to some of that I compare myself and then I get I feel criticized. But I uh, mostly about ninety percent of that is for me, was right down the middle and uh, profound, attractive, and strong, and I like that. Uh, and it's good to be here with my wife, and uh, so why don't I give an AA talk? Uh, I started drinking when I was in high school, freshman, 13 years old, 4 foot 11, 95 pounds, mostly mouth, and uh, <laughs> second smallest kid in my class. I, I, we, my mom and dad had seven kids, and they wanted to get us out of the house early, you know, so I got under the cutoff and got to school early. Uh, I was insecure, always trying to catch up. I felt like everybody else got to school an hour early, held a meeting, decided what to do, and I always missed the meeting. It seemed like everybody else knew what the hell was going on except me. I got to be a marginal member of the in-group, which is about as good as it got, and uh, I just wanted to fit in. And uh, somewhere in my freshman year, we went out and a friend of mine had a fifth. We split that fifth. My life changed. Uh, when I grew up, we were the products of those Second World War guys, those guys and gals that came back and they made life look easy. They raised, they had big families, they started businesses, they were active in their communities, they were one of the most attractive group of people, and cocktail parties were the order of the day, and we grew up in that environment. I went to a military high school and a college campus. We drank in high school like most people you would think in college. A couple of us almost died of alcohol poisoning of the five guys I hung out with since I was 13 years old, four are in AA and one's in Alanine. 
Of my graduating class of 115, we have a dozen members of AA. We had a lot of alcoholism. We had a lot of recovery, which is astounding. I mean, to have 10% of a high school class, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous is, you know, kind of unusual. I loved alcohol. I loved what it did. For some reason, I could drink better than, like many of us, you have, a, you know, a bigger capacity than uh, than some of the other guys. I just loved it. It brought me from the fringes into the middle. I didn't feel like I was a member of the group. I felt like I owned it. It just, it was, you know, when Clancy talks about it being a disease of perception, it altered my perception, and I went after it as hard and as fast as I could. By the time I finished high school, uh, I had a reputation for being a drinker. My dad, it was a lar lar large, loud conversation in our home. I thought my drinking problem was that I was underage and I had a strict father. And uh, I had a chance to go away to school. I took that chance, thought my drinking normalized. It did not. I drank my way out of the University of Notre Dame in the middle of my senior year in the yearbook with my class ring walked out. You know, I just run my string out. I was in civil engineering carrying 25 credits a semester going to school one out of 10 days. And uh, Linda and I have three boys that are all three alcoholic and all three in recovery. Uh, my wife is a carrier. I have turned her into Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, none of us were alcoholic when we met her. Um, we, uh, my wife has 39 years in Al-Anon. I have. I have been a constant source of growth for her. I don't think she'd have half the program she has if she wasn't for me. I mean, I'm a stimulus. That's good. Uh, <laughs> Frank went down to Notre Dame with me. I got invited down about 20 years ago to go down there and give an AA talk. And I was going to make some amends. And uh, the priest I w specifically went to go make to the man that didn't remember me. You know how you blow things up in your mind? Oh, gee, there were a lot of kids here. You know, I mean, it was really, <laughs> it was really a great thing for me to see how over important I make myself in many circumstances. But I was a class drunk. You know, it's funny, we, we had three kids. Uh, our middle boy went to six colleges and never got the concept of attending until the third. And um, so you get revisited. There's such a thing as karma, you know, and that's the karma I guess I got. I went down there. I really wanted to do well, and I just donated my education, my family's money, my, you know, my parents' good feelings about their kid being down there. Uh, they used my room as a study hall. I was never in it. I was out gambling. I supported myself by gambling, and I was a, you know, I was a jerk. And um, I, I left there. I was due to be commissioned. I had to get a medical release. The medical release I got was for alcoholism. I was diagnosed alcoholic at 19 years old. That seems stupid. I didn't believe it. Chris was talking about. I remember I went down to Notre Dame. When I went down there, the the referred me to a psychiatrist from my other psychiatrist because I, you know, I had, you know, every year I had one or two near-death experiences and get arrested and those sorts of things. And the book I got on alcoholism uh, related it to latent homosexuality. And as unwilling as I was to look at my alcoholism, that second issue was the combination of those two just, you know, was not something I wanted to delve deep, deeply into. And... Um, so I came home, I finished school at a local university. When I finished school, my old man asked me to leave the house. He said, we love you, but we almost can't stand you. <laughs> I got a job at a liquor store and uh, <laughs> have to use your gifts. And um, 
This is the last year of my drinking. I'm drinking a fifth a day. I'm going to, uh, you know, I worked the liquor store, I don't know, four or five months. I'm stealing booze at the liquor store. I'm drinking when I'm driving. I get a ticket for going 80 miles an hour. I get fired. I go work as a waiter in downtown Minneapolis. I'm living not on Skid Row, but close, you know, $10 a night rooms. I'm shacked up with different waitresses and diff living with different people. And, you know, Dr. Seuss, the child author, those are actual photographs of people I lived with during the last year of my... <laughs> drinking. And towards the end of that year, and I'm kind of waiting to see what Vietnam's going to do. I'm trying to get into a garden. You know, I'm trying to get into Oscar Kennedy School, you know, figuring out. And uh, I, got my, I went to a party, got my face kicked in, and I got fired. And I had no place to go. And uh, I went back and asked my family if I could move back in the house. They allowed me to move back in the house. And when I moved back in the house, uh, I really tried to change my life. I was, uh, Frank talked about all he wanted to do was be a man. I, I, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be like my father. I wanted to be like my father's friend. I just wanted to, I wanted to have a wife. I wanted to have a family. I wanted to have a, a good job. And I just, uh, I was a kid who was reasonably well equipped and I just kept screwing it up. I thought I had a built-in failure mechanism. When I moved back in the house, I really tried to straighten it out. I got back together with Linda. I'd broken up with her for about a year and, we got, you know, this is a psychiatric nurse working on an alcohol ward dating me. <laughs> I show up at a party almost comatose, having drunk almost two quarts of alcohol, and she couldn't understand me. I made an appointment the next day, got with her, and asked her if we could get back together and seriously consider marriage, and she said yes. <laughs> she's cute, but she's not very bright. And... Uh, <laughs> Um, so we got engaged, and <laughs> I think of that today, God almighty. And um, I got a job as an executive trainee with a manufacturing concern, bought my first car, and thought my, it was taken off. I just couldn't keep it together. I could not shut my drinking down. I'm a bar drinker. I'd go to work, you know. I'm in this corporation, now I'm the company drunk. They, I mean, I'm falling asleep at my desk, I use up my sick leave in the first four months of work or three months of work. I'm sleeping my hangovers off in a dark room. You know, I'm in deep trouble. I quit that job after six months. I go get a job selling business equipment. I thought a sales job would give me more flexibility. I got the sales job for a couple of months and I'm in trouble. And uh, Buddy of mine got married, and I went on about a three-dayer, and I woke up one Thursday afternoon in July of 1967, and I didn't know if I had a job, a fiancé, or a place to live until I was married, and that was, seemed to be an economic necessity, and all of a sudden the recommendation that I call AA didn't seem so stupid. And I called AA on a central office, and two guys came out and saw me. Uh, they changed my life. We have many traditions in AA, one of the most wonderful ones of which is that we share our experience, strength, and hope, and not our ideology and philosophy. Uh, I had talked to doctors, priests, lawyers, nuns, psychiatrists, psychologists, and Indian chiefs, and, and they diagnosed me, but I never talked to anybody who had a drinking problem. These two men in an hour and a half sat me down in the booth and said, we're from AA, we had a drinking problem, we found a solution in Alcoholics Anonymous, we want to share it with you. And in the sharing of their story with me, uh, I identified and they changed my life. I drank twice after that, once on a business trip to the West Coast uh, where I was told to call AA and I didn't and I drank. And then I, Linda and I were married and I drank on our honeymoon. We were married here in Chicago. And uh, 
did we come here to the Empire Room or did we go to the Drake? We went on our wedding night, and I, I drank. I think I had that planned all the way, you know, kind of in the back of my head. And, you know, we honeymooned in Mexico. You know where the divers dive off those cliffs in Mexico? I dove off those cliffs on my last drunk. And I was in the audience watching the World's High Diving Contest. I thought, God, that's not so tough. And um, <laughs> dove off the public landing, climbed up the cliff, got up to about 85 or 90 feet, you know, split my swimsuit, cut my leg. My wife's going absolutely nuts. And uh, I'm trying to figure out whether to jump or dive, and finally figured out the hell with it, and I dove, and God watched it after fools and drunks, because I made it. I made it down. If I would have jumped, I would have died. You have to get out 35 feet to hit the channel. I didn't know that. And uh, I might have known it intuitively, but I didn't know it deductively. Ten years later, we were down there. We vacationed a lot down there with the kids, and we were watching the divers, and she gave me a card on my 10th A.A. birthday that said, There but for the grace of God, of the picture of that chasm. I said, God, that's the dumbest thing I've ever done. And she said, Honey, it's not even in the top ten. <laughs> so, uh, when I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I met my sponsor. I have the same sponsor from the first day I walked into AA. His name is Warren. He's 87 years old. He's 52 years sober. He was a 12-step champion of Alcoholics Anonymous in the Uptown Group in St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, quite a guy. Perfect for me. Uh, perfect for me. And uh, he sat me down in a chair. I remember... You know, I remember walking into my first meeting. I'm scared. I don't, you know, once I'm committed to go to the meeting, I'm not sure I want to go. I thought they're going to give me a test. I thought they're going to ask me why I was there. I'm 23 years old. I'm scared stiff. And I got treated about as well as anybody could treated. No one gave me that. I've spilled more than you've drunk, you know, nonsense. They were very respectful and very nice. They sat me down in a chair and they he told me that alcoholism was a disease. Chris talked about it physical, mental, spiritual. Once you cross the line from problem drinking to alcoholism, your alcoholism affects you all the time, when you're drinking and when you're not drinking. Now, the idea that my alcoholism could affect me when I was not drinking was like a rocket science, because I thought everybody would tell me what was wrong with me was swallowing bourbon. If I ever stopped swallowing bourbon, my life would clear up. Well, I had had a couple of periods where I took sober for some period of time, and my life didn't clear up. He said, have you ever quit drinking? I said, yeah. He said, did it work? I said, no. He said, I didn't think so. Booze is a symptom. He said, in my opinion, the physical part's 10% of the deal. What we do in Alcoholics Anonymous, once we take our last drink or drug, is we use the 12 recovery steps to change, to find a different way to live that's sufficiently better than the way we lived before, and if you don't change, you're not going to stay. You were using alcohol and drug to do something for you that you weren't willing to do for yourself. You have to find the sobriety what you were looking for in a bottle. They, they explained to me the idea of quitting one day, to, not quitting one day, day at a time, but just all I had to do was do it one day at a time. I got the clear impression, those, my, well, my sponsor had been sober for 13 or 14 years. It wasn't like I didn't know they did, you know, that they had, they were done drinking. I think that's a very important, and they explained that to me, but they said, you don't have to do it forever. You just have to do it for today. Can you do it today? And that was, that was, you know, still, I think, one of the great overlooked things that we do in Alcoholics Anonymous is we lose the power of how powerful it is to live one day at a time. And uh, so I got active. Our groups are closed-step discussion meetings, and we got into the literature, and we got into the groups, and we were talking about the steps almost all the time. When I came back from my, our honeymoon, see, I said our honeymoon, my wife, I think they say my honeymoon. Um, 
We came back from our honeymoon. I got back, and I, I, I got very active. And I got into the steps and, and started to do them. The first thing that I did in my recovery was I tore down the wall that was between you and me. I had a wall built up that I didn't, that hid you, hid the things from you that I didn't want you to see. The thinking that went on behind the wall said, you like me, but you only like what I let you see about me. If you could see everything about me, you'd hate me. I hate me. Who knows more what a lousy, crumbing, insufficient person I am than me. I'm walking around comparing my inside with your outside. And when I came in, I just got scared enough, sick enough, tired enough, and hurt enough that I started to tear that wall down, and I said, hey, come and get me. I don't care who you are, where you come from, but just come and get me and help me not be who I am anymore. I can't stand me five more minutes. For the first time in my life, I shared the whole deck of cards with someone. I started it when I called AA. I continued it in conversations with my sponsor, but no one ever had all the information about me, and I'd kill you with a piece you didn't have. People would come to me with advice, and because they didn't know this about me or they didn't know that about me, I'd neutralize whatever advice they gave me. But when I came in AA and I tore that wall down, I made a discovery. The discovery was that I'm not unique. Most of us come in with a profound sense of uniqueness. If you don't diminish that sense of uniqueness, which usually happens to us in the process of surrender, you're not going to stay because you're going to look for the differences, not the similarities. When I tore my wall down, I made a discovery. I'm not unique. My personality may be unique, but not my illness, not my behavior, not my feelings, not my experience. For the first time in my life, I started to have a sense of hope that maybe what worked for you could work for me. And that was my surrender, a belief that what worked for you could work for me. Uh, I had a honeymoon in AA for about the first nine months. I'd ask a question, I'd get an answer. After I was about a year to a year and a half sober, I'd ask a question, you'd give me an answer, and I wasn't sure you were right. But for almost a year, my ego was suppressed enough that I, you know what I wanted to find in AA? I wanted to find someone who was so smart that they could look through my soul. I wanted someone to find out why I was alcoholic. I wanted to find out someone who, why do I have that part of me that doesn't work? Why can't... Why do I seem to be reasonably well-equipped in the business of living life, but I can't live life? I never found that. What happened to me is I surrendered, I became an alcoholic, and what I had was lots of people who knew a lot about, about alcoholism and recovery from alcoholism. That's what I did. I, I kind of stopped the focus being on Bob. And I had the focus on the alcoholic, me. And I had teachers and people and examples to listen to. Later on, the focus got back on Bob again, and I drifted a little bit. When I came in AA, I thought, okay, I'll buy it. I got a problem. AA's got the answer. If I got a problem and AA's got the answer, I got five or six other things that are going on in my life. If I got the problem and you got the answer, those things ought to get cleared up. And it might take a year. Not. I had issues that were living issues. Couldn't get up in the morning. Uh, later found out that it had something to do with when I went to bed, but I did not know that at the time. I, <laughs> I had financial problems. I spent three or four hundred bucks more a month than I made. We started to have kids, and I used you know, my parents, I had great parents, but even great parents make mistakes, and I wasn't going to make the mistakes they made, and I didn't. I made all the mistakes they made, and a lot of they never thought. I was loud, impatient, angry, immature, and sometimes violent with my children. I'm not proud of that, but that's the way it was. And I had work issues. I had a little problem getting to work. I had some issues about staying at work, and I had a little problem working at work. Other than that, I was a pretty good <laughs> worker. And I had a gambling issue, more of a hobby. Uh, 
four or five hours a day, four or five days a week, it wasn't that big of a deal. But I was making five to ten grand a year playing backgammon, and it was like a second job. And I had all these issues when I took my first, fourth, and fifth step when I was sober about three months, and none of them made my inventory. My first fourth step was kind of a, and fifth step was the things I was most ashamed of. It was, you know, it was my it was behavior focused, and I didn't have much insight into the causes and conditions uh, of my alcoholism. But one by one, I, and I didn't have a very good sense at the end of my first year what my defects of character were. But one by one, you know, my attention would get focused on these things, these arenas of my life, and I would try to deal with them. I make a little progress. By the end of my second year, I had a pretty good list of my defects of character and what wasn't working. And into my third, fourth, and fifth year, I had a very good list. And uh, I felt like I was going backwards. I mean, I, you know, I got, I got this list. I got these things. I'm trying to clean my life up. I'm trying to, you know, learn how to work. I'm trying to be a better husband. I'm trying to be a better father. And I feel like I'm going backwards. In my fourth year, they bothered me. In my fifth and sixth year, they started to eat my lunch. And when I got to my seventh year, I was in deep crap. And I don't want to give the impression that A didn't work. I don't want to give the impression that, you know, I was doing, I think, a reason, I was doing the best I knew how to do, working the steps, going to the meetings, sponsoring people, doing all the things, into the book, doing all the things that I thought I would do. And I'm going to talk about problems in sobriety. And you don't get it all done in a year. You don't get it all done in two years. We make some of the most astounding progress in the first couple of years of our recovery. We are like, I mean, shooting stars. It's just, it's just astounding to me, the changes, when, what happens to us when we're surrendered and we're out of our own way. The power comes through us, and it is just astounding, some of the things that we accomplish. In my experience, a lot of us level out a little bit after the first two years. We find ourselves in the early middle years of sobriety with the issues that we have trouble with in life. As our lives start to expand, as we get back into relationships, job, parenting, work, all those sorts of things, we start running into what we couldn't do. And that's what I ran into. I ran into the, the things I couldn't do. I ran into some of the causes and conditions as to why I would drink. And I tried to deal with them. I didn't do a very good job. I found, found myself for six and seven years in deep, in deep trouble. And I don't think that's a horribly unusual thing for most of us. I think most of us come to a point in time of our program where we have to come to a second surrender. I had sponsees at that point in time that were making more progress than I was making. I'd get to go to the club, I'd get a cup of coffee, the new guy would come in, I'd get him a cup of coffee, and he'd share that bushel basket full of manure that we'd walk in with and tell me about all the troubles that he was having, and I'd say, hey, as tough as it is, as bad as it is, you're in the right place. I'm really glad you're here. If you get into the book and get into the steps and get a sponsor, you don't have to do it perfectly. You just do it, you know, but stay at it and stay here. You're going to be okay. I know you don't believe that. I know you don't understand that, but you are going to be okay. You see that guy over there? God, two years ago, he was a mess, and today he's knocking it out of the park. You're going to be okay. Then I'd get in the car at 11 o'clock at night, drive home from the meeting, and I'd say, Bob, when are you going to be okay? You just bought a $400 sport coat at a store that you had a $600 bill at. When are you going to quit spending money you don't have to buy things you don't need to impress people you don't like? <laughs> Cecil Corrigal. When are you going to learn how to work? Everybody knows how to work. 
You don't know how to work. When are you going to become a man? When are you going to be a better father? When are you going to be more gentle with your children? When are you going to quit gambling? And uh, I didn't have an answer because I'm trying, I really am trying to clean my act up and I'm not making, I'm stuck. I knew what the answer was. The answer was to kind of find out what God had to do with Wednesday. I did not have the power. It was clear to me I didn't have the power. It was clear to me where I was supposed to get the power, but I had a problem. Go knock on the door. God says, who's there? You say, God is Bob. God says, what do you want? I said, I want to turn myself in. I'm eight years sober and my pants are on fire. And the people that I, I had great example. The two things that have saved my bacon in AA is I can't keep my mouth shut, so I talk about what's going on in my life. And the other thing was I had great examples, and I've always been attracted to the old-timers and Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, I knew what the answer was. So my problem was is I'm going to go to God, and I'm going to say, you know, tell him what's going on, and, and, God, and then I'm going to ask the question that everybody in trouble asks, what do I do? You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out what God's going to tell me to do. Get up in the morning. Go to work. Stay at work. Work at work. <laughs> Be gentle with your wife. Be gentle with your children. Get on a budget. Okay, I think that's an Al-Anon word. I think it's a tough word. Quit gambling. I'm going to say, hell, if I knew how to do all those things, I wouldn't need God. Okay. So what's the use of going to develop a relationship with God if you can't fulfill the conditions of the relationship? And I was stuck in that place for almost two years. And finally, about the time I was seven or seven and a half years, your dad was dying of cancer. It was 1975. I guess it was seven years sober. Uh, I had a second surrender. And uh, I went back to the steps out of desperation. And I... Uh, took a look at step one and found out what powerlessness and unmanageability meant to me seven years sober. I was clearly powerless and I was unmanageable. You know the step I lost? Step two. I believed it for you, but not for me. I believe God would restore us to sanity, but not Bob Bazan. I'm seven years sober and I'm going backwards. I'm on the down escalator. Every time I take a breath, I, you know, move down two steps. And when you're in trouble, I guess you get more or less active. I got more active, and I started to see people with bigger problems, with smiles on their face, walking through issues I was trying to avoid, with dignity and grace. And I came to believe that God would restore me to sanity. I took step three on my knees with my sponsor in his office. We didn't do that in those days, but I started to go to conferences, and I was hearing some of these people from different parts of the country talk about that, and I thought, what the hell? I'm gonna, this time I'm going to dot the I's and cross the T's and give it a shot. A little, a little awkward, but pretty powerful. And I did my third four-step when I was seven years sober. Maybe the best one I've ever done, because I was about as much pain and about as much trouble as I've ever been in my life. And uh, I went to my, and I did it with my sponsor. The first two I had done, I did with my with clergy, which was our pattern, what we, what we did and where I was from. I went to my sponsor and I said, when I'm done, be careful because whatever you recommend, I'm going to do. I said, I feel like I'm lying next to a lake dying of thirst. I said, I could pass the test. You could ask me what to do and I could tell you what to do. I just can't do it. I'm so bloody tired of not being able to do it. I just can't tell you how tired I am of that. And I did my, I did a four-step, I did my fifth-step. 
And one of the things he recommended that I do is I go to a psychologist that works with work issues. I didn't want to do that. That felt like an admission of failure. It felt like it singled me out, made me different. It felt like I was an admission that my program wasn't working. <laughs> Hello. And, um, <laughs> but I promised that I would, and I did. And I went to a psychiatrist, a psychologist, and he asked me if I'd get my mother and father involved. I said, no. My mother and father have been involved plenty. I, I said, if you can't help me without getting my mom and dad involved, please refer me to someone who can. He said, well, you get your wife involved. And I thought, oh, crap. Well, they see it so differently. <laughs> Maybe more accurately. Maybe more honestly. And it's tough to be in a room with a spouse who's got a front seat view of what you're not doing very well. Well, you get the kids involved. I didn't want my kids involved. I was ashamed of my rageful incidences. But I said, yeah, I will. I don't know how long we went to a psychologist, but it was, I don't know. 12, 15, 16 visits, a couple. Really a neat guy, healthy guy. I remember that I'm in this psychi psychologist's office, and my, I've got this company, and I'm going broke. I don't know why I'm busting my ass two, three hours a day. And I got... Um, <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> he looked at me, and he said, Why are you so afraid of failing? I mean, I, it was like he hit me in the chest. I wanted to punch him. I, I just, which is not an ordinary reaction. I just wanted to punch him in the nose. I remember I said, I said to him, look, you're a doctor. I said, I'm, I'm going broke. You know, my company's going downhill. I'm about to lose everything I had. I said, nod your head up and down if you understand that. I said, I, you know, I'm gonna, I've lived in this town all my life. I'm in the investment business. So I'm about to lose everything I had. I said, you're a doctor. I said, you go broke. You know, you just walk down the hall, pound your sign on another door. Within three months, you're making a hundred grand. I said, I'm going to lose everything I have. He looked at my wife and he said, "If Bob loses everything he has, will he lose you?" My wife said, "No, wouldn't lose me." He looked at Billy and Peter and he said, "If your dad lost everything he had, would he lose you?" And the kids said, "No, wouldn't lose us." If you can't lose, you can't play. I'm the guy who doesn't make sales calls. I don't even take the chance that you drag me over the desk and force me to sell you something. You know. If we were to have a marathon, I would have had a great running outfit. You would have expected that I would have been one of the best runners in the group. And when the group took off, I'd be in the top 10, 20 runners for the first third of the race. But somewhere between a third and halfway through the race, I'd fall down, hurt myself, and I wouldn't finish. When the race is done, someone say, what happened to that guy from Minnesota? I don't know, hell of a runner. Won some race in Minnesota. Must have pulled a hamstring or something. But if you would have followed me around in the helicopter in my life for the last five years, you could have guessed within 35 feet of when I would have quit because I don't finish anything. Alcoholism doesn't cost much. It just costs your life. You never get to get your gifts out of the box. They're still under the piano, in the box, with the ribbon on top, and we never find out what instrument we're supposed to play in the orchestra. You never get to be who you're meant to be in the business of your life. You play on the periphery. 
And what I learned in the process with that psychologist, I didn't want to go to, is how afraid I was. I'd done three inventories, and my fear inventory was had no insight. Dogs, trees, or dogs, tall buildings, and snakes. You know, I had no insight into the fact that I was afraid of being a husband. I was afraid of being a father. I was afraid of failure. I had a pretty successful dad, and I thought I'm never going to be as successful as my father. And I was afraid of success. Not too long after that, I had a crappy day, and I was home, and I went to work late, left early, got in a backgammon game, won 600 bucks, missed the AA meeting, missed dinner, got in a fight with my wife, and slapped one of the kids. One of those nights you'd like videotaped and sent to the general service office to show what eight years can do for them. And I said, gee, it happened again. I said, it happened again. Weren't you there? <laughs> yeah, I was there. But it's so habitual. It's like it's automatic. It's like I'm in a blackout. I don't even have to think about it. It happens by itself. And all of a sudden I realized that was a bunch of BS. It didn't happen by itself. I did it. I chose to do it. I sounded like a guy who didn't want to gamble. I wanted to gamble whenever I wanted to gamble for as much money as I wanted to gamble, not have problems because of gambling. I wanted my wife and children affection without spending time with them. I wanted money without work. Not a great design. When I came in Alcoholics Anonymous, I surrendered and I stood naked in front of my alcoholism and it altered me. I drank twice after that, but I couldn't pretend like it was the same thing. It wasn't the same thing. I knew it didn't work. I knew I was alcoholic and I could not drink. That night, I realized that I had busted my britches pretty well to try to be a good guy and get rid of my defects of character, and I had failed. And for some reason, at that moment, and maybe only that moment, that seemed okay. And I stood naked in front of my life, and it changed me. And I realized that I had tried as hard as I knew how to try, and I had failed because I'm not the source. And that night I got down on my knees and took the six and the seven step, and four of the major problems in my life disappeared that night, such as the power of the six and the seven step and the three requirements of being honest, open-minded, and being willing. God doesn't change us. A doctor doesn't heal. He creates an aseptic environment, creates an atmosphere in which healing can take place, and God heals. A farmer doesn't grow. He plants a seed. He creates a fertile environment where growth can take place, and God grows, and we don't change. We create an atmosphere when change can take place and God changes us. I am the pipe, not the well. I am not the source. I have always had the information. I have always known what to do. I just have not had the power to do it. But when you're in trouble, your ego gets ground down, and I got more open than I had been, and I was willing to be where I was. Most of the time in my life, I've never been willing to be where I was. You know that wall I tore down in my first year of sobriety? I built it back up. In sobriety, going to five meetings a week. Thank you very much for my drinking problem. Stay out of my sex life. Stay out of my marriage. Stay out of my finance. Stay out of my children. Stay out of my wife. Brick by brick, sober, I built the damn wall back up. In Alcoholics Anonymous, feeling like I'm unique and different and not understood seven years sober. That's the ego's tool. Uniqueness, different, comparison. 
I'm in my tank, driving around in my tank, looking through the slit at everybody else with my little machine gun, killing people. I'm trying to get well. I'm decorating my tank. I've got new armor plating on it. I've got new red, new tires. You know, I'm driving down with the tank, looking at everybody else's tank. I got a great tank. I forgot I was the driver. I wasn't doing much with the driver. That night, when I got down on my knees and those four issues changed, I had a a second surrender. But I had to put a structure in place. I. You know, I started dating my wife. I dated my wife every Friday night for the next 25 or 30 years. I had everybody else's love and affection. It was, or I had her love and affection. I was everybody else's I was out chasing. And I had to learn how to go back and get romantic and be with my wife. We were talking about kids and bills. That wasn't how we found love. And we had to go back and create some great, you know, we'd come to Chicago and shack up for the weekend and start doing some fun things. I turned the finances over to my wife. I gave her my paycheck. She had us out of financial difficulty in about nine months. She could be part of a bill. Damnedest thing I had ever heard. I had... <laughs> and uh, I stopped gambling that night. I made appointments with my sponsor about when I'd go to work and how long I'd stay at work and what I'd try to do at work. I remember I was selling real estate investments. I remember I was in the parking lot of one of the big corporations in Minneapolis trying to get out of the car to go make a call that I knew wouldn't work. And I had to read the third step prayer to get my butt out of the car to go do this. And I got up there, and the guy bought the investment. And when he bought the investment, I made $1,000. And I'm on the elevator coming down out of this building, and I, I had this thought. And the thought was, God, if a guy did that regularly... <laughs> <laughs> It was like this insight. <laughs> I've spent thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours trying to learn how to be a better parent. I think being a parent takes 125% of whatever you got. I think having children is like having a bowling alley installed in your head. I think it's one of the most demanding processes that we will ever have. And it's one of the great privileges of life. But it's a demanding process. And my life took off like it was on a rocket ship for the next 10 years. I made enough money to burn a wet elephant. The guy that didn't know how to work with a good business partner who was 42 years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, we built a real estate investment company. And, and a, lot of, a lot of business success is luck. We were kind of in the right place at the right time. There are plenty of people who are every bit as smart as I am who uh, worked as harder, harder, and we just happened to be in a the right business at the right time, and it was a business you could make a lot of money, and for the next 10 years I made a lot of money. I had the big house, the cars, all this. This is my deeply shallow period. Uh, you know, I'm the guy in the very expensive suit at the meeting with the very expensive tie walking in, you know, parking the Mercedes in the lot, thinking that God has blessed me because of what a wonderful member of AA I am. How'd you like to be in my group? There are problems with failure, but there are problems with success. There's an arrogance that I developed that I, it was invisible to me. I did not see it. And um, I don't know. Think, you know, I'm, it's funny. And we can look back on our lives. I'm so grateful I didn't have that significant financial success in the first part of my sobriety. I went to those five to seven meetings a week and built my foundation, and I'm glad by the time I ran into that period where I was making the big bucks, 
that, you know, because I stayed active. I stayed plugged in. I, was, I was, wasn't as plugged in as I was because I was distracted. Found myself in meetings thinking about deals. That never happened to me in my first six or seven years. It happened to me in my second, you know, six or seven years. And then in 1984, they passed the Tax Act. Things changed, and between 1984 and 1991, I went broke. I lost everything I had. And uh, if you're going to be in life a long time, you're going to have your turn in the barrel. I don't care who you are, where you are, you're going to have death, disease, ch children issues, financial issues, divorce issues. You're just going to have life. It's just going to show up on your doorstep. And uh, I remember just before I went broke, I went to a guy and I asked him to be my spiritual advisor. And he said, what do you want? And I said, there's a man in Texas by the name of Bob White. And he was my mentor. And I said, he's, everybody loves Bob White. They feel like they're his best friend. I said, I am a guy, I'm so competitive. I just, well, you tell me something, I gotta tell you something better. I said, I wanna be less materialistic and more loving. Within about three months, I started to lose everything I had. <laughs> I went back to George, I said, we gotta talk. I, what, I, what I meant was, I wanna keep the stuff and be less materialistic. <laughs> We laugh about that today, uh, and uh, I lost lots of money in the next period of time. We lost the big house. We bought the damn house you wanted to buy, and uh, <laughs> and when you get more active, when you when you get in trouble, you get more active or less active. And I got more active. And thank God for AA. If it wasn't for my wife and it wasn't for AA, I don't think I would have made it through that period of time. I think I would have killed myself. I was in as much pain, losing the money. I never thought I'd lose it. You know, if any of you are out there praying to be millionaires, include the idea of keeping it. <laughs> it never occurs to us that if we ever got prosperity that we'd lose it. I just want to just add that. As long as you're praying for it, just, you know, throw that idea in there. <laughs> losing that money was not like changing my clothes. It was like tearing the skin off my body. And I had to find out who I was with money and who I was without money. And I don't think that's why God had the real estate collapse, but I, that was my lesson to learn in the middle of the real estate. I remember Peter, our middle boy, went, came back. Our boys have 1916 and eight years of sobriety. They are 37, 35, and 26 years old. And uh, Peter came back from college, got arrested for drunken driving, Told on an automobile and ended up in detox. It was kind of his Christmas present to Linda and I. And uh, <laughs> I'd go to that halfway house that he was in, and we'd have a meeting on a Friday night. So I'd go to that meeting. I'd start crying in the, when the meeting started, and I'd cry all the way through the meeting. Can't you just see the guy? Just see that guy over there? He's got 23 years. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you like to have what he has? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he nursed me through that period of time. And, uh, you know, when uh, Chris was talking this morning about Alcoholics Anonymous being about a spiritual awakening, being about finding God, it is. That's what it's about. When Frank talked about AA, is easier to come to than it is to stay in. When... 
Peggy or whoever was talking about that people leave during their fifth, the sixth, and seventh year, that gap that you see in the different groups. And I think that re there's two reasons why I think people leave Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're only attending Alcoholics Anonymous meetings for yourself, you get bored. You know what Mary's going to say. I've been in meetings with Mary for three years. I mean, she says the same darn thing every time we're talking about that subject. And, you know, you just, I mean, you, you become a critic when you stop being a player. And, um, and if you don't work with people, uh, I think it gets boring. There is something about working with people that never gets old. There's always a newness to it. There is something so wonderful about sitting down with someone eyeball to eyeball and trying to assist them in their lives and in their program and finding yourself saying something that you didn't know before you said it. And it's the absolute perfect thing to be said at that moment. And it was like it came through you but not from you. And that is the magic that has happened, I think, in Alcoholics Anonymous. And you, all of a sudden you get a sense that it's a privilege to be in that moment. I'm going to say something before I forget. I, uh, I asked Chris why, uh, I asked Eric why Chris wasn't on the panel. He said, well, we wanted the three big groups. You know, you have the three of the largest groups and three of the replicatable groups in the United States, the Lamont Oaks, the Foxhall Group, and the Pacific Group, which you call the California Group here. And I'm from a more ordinary, unduplicated, uh, different type of meeting, not a speaker meeting in, in you know, St. Paul, Minnesota, and they included me because there was some contrast. Uh, a lot of times when you hear people talk about these magical groups, you get the impression that your group is lame. There's something wrong with it, or there's something wrong with the way you're doing it. And I, I think what all of us need to do, we need to listen selectively. We need to listen to the positive things that those groups are doing right, and take those things and notice them and start to include them in what we do, rather than defend ourselves and what we're doing. I mean, we need to be open. We need to, you know, be going to do these things. And, our, and because our groups are different and are maybe even less spectacular, doesn't mean that they're wrong. You know, you, not everybody can be in the Pacific group. Not everybody wants to be in the Pacific group. You know, uh, you know, I'm fine with the group that I'm in. I'm fine with the sponsor that I've had. I'm fine with the tradition that I've followed, you know, that I was brought to the steps, that we were dedicated to this step meeting. And yet, Lamont Oaks, I think it's one of the finest groups of Alcoholics Anonymous that I have seen anywhere in the world. I go to the Pacific group meetings, I think they're some of the best meetings I've ever been to. But I don't, you know, I've got to be in, I live in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I suppose I could start that. There's a, you know, there's one of those groups in Minneapolis, uh, and I could go to it, but I don't, because I've got my pattern of meetings, they're working for me, and that's where my guys are, and that's where the people that I sponsor. Alcoholics Anonymous works lots of places, and you have to learn to hear the music. It is not the form. One of the things that's going on today in Alcoholics Anonymous is there's more teaching on AA than there ever has been. When Chris talked about, the, you know, big book thumpers and you're going through, there are more experts on the big book today than there ever have been since I've been on the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Some of those people who have the first 164 pages memorized, I would not want to go on a camping trip with. <laughs> now don't, please, don't, I, I'm not trying to be frivolous. There are, I love the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. You wonder where the answer is? It's in the book. There's no question about that. It is our text. It does describe how to recover. 
Recovery is in the steps. I'm very serious about taking the steps. I'm in the process right now of doing a fourth step. I've been, I've been involved in the steps as the main structure of my program ever since I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous. But the book, while it is a description, is the text. It is the menu. It is not the food. The menu you incorporate into your life and into the structure of your life, and when you take the actions, you get the food. When you take the actions, you connect with this power greater than yourself, and you start to, you start to have the spiritual awakening and experience that we talk about. But you can memorize the words. You can have all the information. But if you don't do it, you won't get the change. And there are times that you do it, you don't get the change. It is not mechanical. If it was mechanical, all you'd have to do anytime you have a problem is say the third step prayer and click your heels, you'd be back in Kansas. <laughs> well, if you've been around a while, you know it ain't quite that simple. It isn't just about doing. The process of Alcoholics Anonymous is transformational. It's about altering the way you be, not what you do. Once you alter the way you be, doing follows automatically from that. What's the answer? It's surrender. There's no question about that. Frank talked about it last night, surrender and conformity. I wanted to stand up and say, yeah, but you know, it's, it's conformity to yourself. It's in, I mean, it's, it's, it's conformity to society, yeah. Conformity to the group, yes. But interestingly enough, over a long period of time, it's conformity to your true self, to the God of your understanding as the God speaks to you in the process of your program, you start to come home. And I think sometimes we forget, and, and I... You know, I still got an ego. I compare myself. I compare myself to Frank. I compare myself to Jones. I compare myself to Clancy. I compare myself to Chris. I compare my. I just do that. Now I've been around long enough to know that that's ego, and I don't pay much attention to it, but I still do it. But I'm of the opinion that I don't know if I'll ever be as good as some of those members of Alcoholics now. In some ways, the people that you hear speak at conferences, we're anomalies. You know, first of all, us old guys, we're not the core of Alcoholics Anonymous anymore. We know a lot of things. We're still active. We are in the game, and we're, we're doing our part. The people who really are the lifeblood of Alcoholics Anonymous, 5 to 15 years, they're blowing the top off the can. You heard Chris this morning. Chris has got 19 years, but... That fire, that's the fire that's keeping Alcoholics Anonymous alive. I got some of that fire. But I'll tell you, the people that are doing the bulk of that work are in the early middle years of Alcoholics Anonymous, not 40 years sober. Most of the guys are never going to sponsor, and gals in this room are not going to sponsor 25 or 30 people. So when you get an example up here of a person who goes to seven meetings a week, who sponsors 25 people, who goes around the country giving AA talks, I don't think that's the model. 
I think the model is the person who goes to as many meetings as they need to go to to sustain their spiritual condition, that has a sponsor, that maybe has a wife, maybe has a couple of, or a, or a husband, that maybe has a couple of kids. AA is meant to return us to life, not to be life. And, I, I, and it's funny, and I don't want to use the word, sometimes we sound like the purpose of our recovery is to serve AA. It's not. It's like back, it's both. If you have recovery, you will serve in AA. Because out of the love and joy that you have in your recovery, you're just automatically, it's going to flow out of you and you're going to help people. But it's the job of Alcoholics Anonymous to return us to life. It's to serve us. It does not, not come like a getter. So I mean, it's both those things. The measure of what it is to be a good AA isn't just the amount of people you sponsor, the amount of meetings that you go to. It's what kind of a person are you at work, with your family, with yourself. We hide in some of the actions in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a lot easier to go to seven meetings a week than it is to stop reading pornography. It's a lot easier to sponsor three more people than it is to stop gambling. It's a lot easier to get on some committee than it is to get, you know, to get your financial affairs in order. There are plenty of guys that are great sponsors and don't talk to their wives very much, very well. The purpose of the program is to heal our lives, to bring the power of God into our program, the power that we do not have, to add that power to us. And what does the program say? Having had a spiritual awakening, how does it work? I think somehow we think we're going to get it by more effort. It isn't just by effort. There's, there's a way of being that you have to bring yourself to the process. Part of it's surrender. I mean, we know that's the answer, but how do you tell someone how to surrender? Because it's of God, you can't just contain it in words. You just can't describe it and have Mary surrender because you told her what it is. So you have to be a certain way to get the full benefit of the steps that we take in the program. I don't know, and what, what is that way? I don't know, but I know it includes honesty. I know it includes humility. I know it includes some work. I know it includes surrender. And sometimes you've got to do it when you're dry. Sometimes you've got to do it when you know it isn't going to work. But in that process, if we really open ourselves up to the power of God, we change. And little by little, what happens to us if we stay, it deepens. The steps just don't become something you do. They become something you are. That you bring, you bring a surrender, that you bring an honesty, that you bring a humility, that you bring God, that you bring your centering. And the choice always seems to be either have a self-centered life running your life. Chuck used to talk about it. you got a choice. You can have a self-centered life and suffer the consequences or a God-centered life and suffer the consequences. When you have a self-centered life, you got a 16-year-old kid and your ego running your life and your intellect. When you have a God-centered life, you're plugged in, and you are not the most important thing on the universe. Is your ego still there? Yeah, but it's a junior partner. <laughs> you can't get rid of your ego. It's a space suit. You need it for the trip. You do. You have to develop a compassion about your ego. You're not going to kill that thing. 
Someone talked about, you know, you spend the first 20 years of your life developing an identity and the last 20 years trying to get rid of it. There's a lot of truth in that. And there's been some hinting and some talks about how Alcoholics Anonymous is today. I think there's been some very provocative things said. When I talk to Frank, it's one of the things that we do when we walk the beach or we talk about what's going on today. We are a society. And because we are a society, we are influenced by society as a whole, and we reflect society as a whole. We have more divorce in Alcoholics Anonymous today probably than we've had before because society has more divorce. The people that we're getting, I think, are in some ways more complex. We have multi-drug is, you know, much more the order of the day than it was when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. I think the, the people, most of the people that I see in that process are clearly alcoholic, but it's more complex. Some of those people get screwed up from the time they're 13 years old. That was not the pattern. When I came in in 1967, the typical member of Alcoholics Anonymous was male and 55 years old, married, churched, and schooled, had a profession. He might have been a painter, might have been a janitor, but they've been doing whatever the hell they've been doing for the last 20 years. Their pants were on fire. They were in deep crap. But they most of the time went back to what they had done. Half to two-thirds of the people that I see coming in my group today got no place they want to be returned to. They are not church. They are not schooled. They are not married. They are not educated. They've been in trouble since they've been 13 to 15 years old, and they're, they don't have a sense of what they want to do in their lives. The men and women who came in in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s had an idea what they wanted, had a context in which they had a sense of what they wanted to do for their own life. And that's one of the things that I think our program can give us, the context in which to live our lives, to be good men, to be good women. What does that mean? I don't know exactly, but in our hearts we all know. I was reading a book the other day, and it talked about happiness, and it said that happiness, you are happy when you have some sort of sense that you are making reasonable progress towards healthy goals. And I, I like that. But happiness, for most of us, is conditioned on circumstances. But peace and joy are not conditioned on circumstances. You can have tough circumstances, and you can have peace and joy. I've seen more people in early sobriety with tough circumstances that have peace, more peace in that first year, year and a half, than they had when they were sober four or five years. Today, we are troubled by obsessive thinking. Society today supports Addiction, not recovery. When I came in, society supported recovery. Today, it's about more. Today, it's about you. Today, you know what the religion of today is? Psychology. You know, Chris was talking about this morning, all the feelings that you are, you, gotta, you kind of get into it. There's no resolution in that. There's insight in it, but there's no solution in it. You just endlessly cycle through what you think your feelings and what your judgments what your opinions are or what's going on. You feel like you're not connected to your life. You're, you're a complainer of your, in your own life. If I emptied this room out and said, I'm going to come back and I'm going to talk next year, and I want everybody in this room to be in the room, which we aren't going to get, as Frank said, you know what? If we don't add some spiritual element to our lives, we're going to have the same problems in this room this, with the same people that we have right now. The problems we have in this room aren't new. They're not weeks old. 
they're years old. And that's why some of us lose hope. How do we change? Is there a big book here? Most of us think we're going to change because we're going to hear something that's really going to make a difference for us. My favorite part of the big book, and I, I'm going to have trouble reading this thing. And it says we have, on page 84, we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity has returned. We seldom <coughs> are interested in liquor, and if we are, and I use, when I read this with some of my guys, we talk about gambling or sex or money. We're, you know, and if tempted, we recoil like it's from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally. We find that this has happened automatically. Now, does that sound like you're doing it? Does that sound like it's your information, your brilliance, your decision? We will see that our new attitude towards liquor or sex or gambling, whatever we're dealing with in our life, has been given to us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That's the miracle of it. We're not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as if we've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We've not sworn off. Instead, the problem's been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we are afraid. That's our experience. And this is our is how long this is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. So my job is to maintain my spiritual condition. If I maintain my spiritual condition, I am connected to a power greater than myself. I'm connected to a deeper sense of intuition and intelligence than my ego and intellect has. The intellect is a handheld computer. Intuition and God connection is connected to the mainframe. It is a deeper way of knowing. It's a deeper way of guiding our lives. It has wisdom, not just information, not just data, not just words. It carries the fundamental message. The process of finding God is not a difficult process. It is not a process of addition of anything. It's a process of removal. We are intact, perfectly okay at some level, and I think we all know that. And we've dragged that perfect magnet to the junkyard of life, and we showed up in Alcoholics Anonymous with a five-foot metal ball of crap that we have picked up in our process of getting here. And in surrender, and in the taking of the steps, you pry piece by piece off that bloody ball until one day a light shines through from the core of that ball. It's a process of removal what is in our way and what teaches us what's in our way is life. Chop wood, carry water, live your life. In the living of your life and in the relationships of your life you will run into what's in your way. And if you're a sojourner, if you're on a spiritual journey, if you're serious about your program, when you run into what's in your way, you will take that item, and maybe you'll do an inventory, or maybe you will discuss it with your sponsor or other people in your group, and you will start to get some insight in it, and you may have an opportunity to pry another piece off the ball. And in the process of removing that, what you will be becoming is who you have always been. You will be coming home. You will be connected to God. And maybe that God is who you are. 
in the deepest essence of your life. That is who you be. That is your source of energy. That is our source of spirit. That is our connection to the great reality. What's in our way today is the world and the issues of it and the psychology of it. The world that tells you you can overmortgage your house, that you don't shouldn't have any problems in your life, that you poor baby, you have a problem, take this pill, get this money, get a card, don't wait. The thing that says that what that your answer is external, that who you are is what you buy and what you have. That's what our society is telling us today. That you can stay in your bedroom on the internet, you can have sex, drugs, and gambling and never leave your room. That you can have, you know, thirty, forty, fifty, seventy thousand dollars in credit card debt, and it's okay, because you deserve it. You need it now. Life's not supposed to be difficult. Bullshit. But there is a joy, and when we are the best, we are. There's no greater feeling. The best I have always been is when I'm in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I have trouble living this program. I got three or four issues that are going on in my life right now that I'm not missing any information and I'm not able to perform at the level that I'd like to perform. Such is the nature of life. I don't, you don't get perfect. But I'm in the game. I got a helmet. I'm doing the steps. I got a sponsor. I go to meetings. My sponsor and I probably have more of a father-son relationship today. And today I use people like Jerry and Frank and my spiritual advisor. And when we check in with each other, we kind of let each other know how we're doing so that I, I feel like I'm being honest and open, that I've got someone who knows what's going on in my life, who doesn't judge me, that can share that with me when I do it. This has been a terrific weekend. I love you. God bless.